My guest Shonda is an author and anti-oppression consultant with 20 years of community organizing experience. Uh, and she particularly loves helping organizations get diversity, equity, and inclusion teams off the ground. And these types of topics are just so important and interesting to me. I mean, for the obvious reason of how important they are to our society, right? And, and getting these things right, figuring out how to address some of these things, how they reduce unnecessary suffering, but also because they speak directly to the complexity of human nature, which is, you know, where, where I love to live. <laughs> um, I, I think trying to understand, you know, the root cause of things like oppression or inequity, which I think is critical to actually addressing the issue, right? We have to understand the root cause. But I think to understand the root cause, it requires you to understand human nature. You have to really swim in it and explore it. And this made for a good discussion because Shonda has tons of practical hands-on experience working with individuals and organizations in this area. So we were able to explore kind of the theoretical concepts as well as the real life implications and how it actually plays out. So she started with accountability as her most important value because she believes in impact over intent. Or as she put it, we should always honor intent, but we must acknowledge impact. And by that she means, you know, my interpretation of it, in my words, we can't take our hands off the wheel. We can't just assume we're good people. We can't just assume that because we didn't intend to harm somebody that harm wasn't caused. We actually have to do the work, hold ourselves accountable to see what the impact of our actions actually is. And I'll say the other thing I enjoyed about this conversation um, is that we covered a lot of different areas, meaning we looked at it from a religious and kind of spiritual perspective. We looked at it from a historical perspective, looked at it from a philosophical perspective, a psychological perspective. We really tried to look at the issues from all angles, which I think is what you have to do to try and understand them. So, you know, throughout the conversation, we talked about things like power dynamics, racism, um, if we should care about other people's children as much as we care about our own. We talked about Black Lives Matter. We talked about Bacon's Rebellion. We really hit all different sides of this to, to try and explore it. And I'll be honest, um, I'm still not sure if we as humans are capable of overcoming some of these deep-rooted issues that have plagued us since the beginning of time. But it always does give me hope to hear the stories of someone like Shonda who is doing the work to bring people together, to allow them to share their stories with each other and trying to find ways to focus on what connects us rather than what divides us. So that, I, I thank her a ton uh, for being on the show and let's get to the episode. All right, Chanda, thank you so much for being here. I'm really excited to talk to you today. I appreciate you making the time. Uh, I'm like to, to be here because it's a great show. Oh, thank you so much. I appreciate you saying that. Um, I love to jump right in. So I will do that with the first question of what's the value that's most important to you? Yeah, I love that. I mean, I know everybody loves this question, uh, but it's a fun one to think about. And uh, I I land on just the simple word accountability. Ooh, okay, that's good. Yeah. And I don't think any of your other guests have said that one. I was poking around to make sure. <laughs> yeah, for me, it's accountability. And I think that's because um, whether it's been in the work I've done in community organizing, whether it's been the work I've done in faith communities, whether it's been the work I've done in public policy, um, or what I do most of the time these days, which is diversity, equity, and inclusion, I think the the key is accountability. You know, mm. I think anybody who's been to corporate um, boundaries trainings or, you know, sensitivity trainings learns that phrase, impact over intent. Mm. And in some ways, I think an even healthier ethical framework is accountability because mm. that gets it. I know I didn't mean to cause harm, but I caused harm. So mm. what should I do about that? Mm. Rather than I didn't mean to cause harm and that's what should matter. 
Mm, um, mm. So I, I think accountability is at the heart of it for me. All right. I like that. I like that. So maybe let me dive in on that one point you just said there just to start, and then we can kind of backtrack to wherever we want to go. Um, that's an interesting point, right? That whole idea, which I agree with, I think in many ways of, I didn't, I didn't mean to cause harm, but I did. I think that's yeah. a tough one for people to get over in oh, a lot yeah. of ways. And it gets right to the heart of accountability. Why do you think that is so hard to people get over? Is there anything to that idea that, but I didn't mean to, so that should mean something like let's, let's swim in that for a little bit. Yeah. So I don't want to, it's interesting. Cause I hope that I don't cause, <laughs> I hope I don't cause harm in saying this. <laughs> I do think that it matters. And I also think you know, context is king. Mm. So I learned an amazing uh, group agreement when I was at a meeting of an organization called ACE, uh, Alliance of Citizens for Something Empowerment. Gosh, I can't remember what it stands for. <laughs> Anyhow, a group of primarily people of color, low income renters uh, in Oakland. And one of their group agreements was assume good intent. And I was mm. like, Oh, I see why that matters because we're trying to build power. We're trying to build coalition. We've got very different life experiences. There were black folks, there were brown folks, there were white folks. Um, there were people who were documented. There were people who were undocumented. There were people who had been here for generations and were feeling pushed out. So recognizing we're trying to build something together, assume good intent is a great group agreement. So I thought, oh, this is always a good group agreement. And I did a training on cultural sensitivity for a primarily white group of church folks. And I introduced this concept of assume good intent as a group agreement, thinking this would be really helpful. And they're like, oh, good, because people are always telling me that I caused right. them harm, but I didn't mean to. And they need to pay attention to my intent. And I was like, oh, that is not a universally helpful group agreement after all, right? <laughs> well, I think it's a nuanced one. Um, mm. And so impact over intent is particularly helpful if we're not in relationship over time, mm. um, because what matters is what happened to you. Assume good intent is, is helpful if we are trying to build relationship together over time and are making the choice over and over to say, I'm going to be really clear with you about where you caused harm. I need to believe that you didn't mean to. Mm. Mm. Um mm. And so I think there's something about honor. The phrasing I love the most is honor intent, but acknowledge impact. Mm. And I think some of that just gets down to the very understandable human nature of, I really want them to know I'm a good person. Mm -hmm. And we have associated every single action determines my humanity, right? Mm -hmm. And so if, if someone says to me that was racist, I don't think oh, that action was racist or this thing I did was racist. What I think is they're calling me as a human being racist and I'm not. Yeah. So I think that's the that's why we kind of push back on you caused harm because I'm not a harmful person. Yeah. Yeah. Um, on, on some deep level, we think that being told that an action caused an effect means our entire existence that is at stake, that it's an ontological accusation rather than a how do we fix this behavior or even this pattern yeah and i think even as you're explaining it like it it is it, it can get messy it's nuanced it's complex mm -hmm. there's like different psychological human nature factors into it to me that's why i think accountability is so important because in some ways like what i hear when i hear that there's a lot it's a loaded term there's a lot to yeah, it but sure. it's like there's a responsibility to acknowledge all of that nuance and complexity and understand that this is a messy thing and and embrace that because 
you said human nature. I, I tend to believe that our human nature, our minds do a lot of amazing, wonderful things, but mm -hmm. there's a ton of flaws and a ton of things about it that we shouldn't trust. Yeah. Accountability kind of speaks that to me. It's this, it's a, this acknowledgement that says life is more complex than I wish it was. Yeah. So as much as I wish it could be as simple as I'm a good person, yeah. I, I do good things and that's it. I could just leave it at that. Unfortunately, yeah. It's not. Sometimes right. it still leads to harm. Sometimes you don't realize it. Sometimes your mind lies to you. Sometimes it's all sorts of different uh -huh. things that can happen. And I get why some people, because as you said, they so desperately, we all so desperately want to yeah. be good people, why we, you know, react to that a little bit. But it seems like it's it's something that we have to do. How, how do you do it, though, I guess is the question, right? Because I think <laughs> I, I often say this on the show, so many of this stuff is conceptually people could say yeah 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 accountable i want to be better i don't sure. want to harm i don't want to do it but our mind does make it a challenge for us how do you find what's the most effective way to be accountable like how do you what do you what are the pitfalls you see how do we overcome them how do you how do you actually yeah. try to teach people to be more accountable you know and it's fascinating because i think we don't pay attention to who we are actually being accountable to mm -hmm. and much of our behavior is actually accountable to something right the fact that sometimes I don't jaywalk is because I'm accountable to our policing system. Right. It's not because I think jaywalking is a moral problem or on a personal level, I think, it, you know, there's some ethical issue to it. Right. Um, it's largely because I don't want to get a fine, right? Um, I'm actually accountable to the policing system when I choose not to jaywalk, even though I think it's safe. So we're, we're actually always being accountable to something or someone. Right. Um I have a, I, I teach a class on social enterprise and at the beginning of the semester, I ask the students who, who are taking on a project over the semester, who will you be accountable to and how will that show up in your planning process? Mm. And usually they'll say, well, I'm accountable to the nonprofit that I'm working in, or I'm accountable to the board or, and all of those social enterprise projects are intended to help people who have been marginalized, right? Whether it's queer folks or people of color or poor folks or immigrants, um, almost never in that first conversation, in that first assignment, do people say, I'm accountable to the people I'm helping. Because actually our system is almost never set up to be accountable to the people we're helping because actually our intent is supposed to matter more than our impact. Mm. Um, and so simply asking, let's assume I'm accountable in this action. Who is it that I'm being accountable to? I'm not saying don't be accountable to the board, don't be accountable to the institution. They're gonna make sure you're accountable anyhow. Mm. Um, so who is it I'm seeking to serve and how am I being accountable to them is a helpful question on the front end to ask, especially when we're trying to do some sort of social good. and. I get really excited about anybody who wants to do some sort of social good. So yeah. I think it's a great place to start. Yeah. Yeah. I think it is. And I think, I think so often we lose sight of that. I think when people break bed, they, they lose sight of like the big picture. And I think that's such a good example of it. I mean, just that little illustration of, Oh yeah, I'm accountable to the board. Well, the board only exists. The nonprofit only exists because they're trying to help some people. Yeah. And I think you're exactly right. I think we lose sight of that. Even even on like a, I see it societally today, you know, wherever people sit on the political spectrum, societal issues, mm -hmm. whatever, progressive, conservative, by and large, when you speak to them individually, it's, you know, I, I want the world to be a better place for my mm -hmm. kids or my grandkids, yeah. or I want to, you know, whatever it is, it's all good. But then 
you look at what's happening and what's actually out there and what the effect or the impact is of what's being done. And it's not creating that. And it seems to be like, to your point, like, who am I actually accountable to? Am I accountable to society and the world and what I'm trying to make? Right. Or am I accountable to this political group that I'm affiliated with or to this other thing? Right. And I think just that. Or the people who pay my salary. Pay my salary. Yeah. Yeah. That accountability to be honest with yourself about who you're accountable with is probably one that's, yeah, that's a tricky one that I think most people probably don't even think about often. Mm. And then there's another layer to it, which is, and so how am I listening for what they want? Because that's also not always built into the process. One of my, so I wrote a book called Transforming Communities, how people like you are healing their neighborhoods. Uh, And it's about regular people getting together and making a difference in their communities. And one of my favorite, uh, one of my favorite illustrations of that is the Dudley Street Neighborhood Initiative. Are you in Boston? I know you lived no, in New Boston. York. You're I, in New I York did now. Live in Boston, okay. but New York. Yeah, so yeah. you might remember the Dudley Street Neighborhood um, in Boston. Maybe not. I don't um, remember it. Yeah, that's okay. So the Dudley Street Neighborhood was a very popular dumping ground, right? Like because it was mostly, it was all poor people, mostly, you know. Caribbean or West West African or Caribbean or uh, Latinx uh, immigrants, poor white folks, poor uh, African-American folks, and no infrastructure. They'd been disinvested in for decades. And and in the middle of the night, if, uh, if a company had toxic waste they wanted to get rid of, they could drive it in there and drop it off because they knew they weren't going to get in trouble for it, right? It's a really badly treated community. There were a bunch of nonprofits uh, that were trying really hard to make a difference in that community. And this big foundation, the folks who have the money that they invest in the nonprofits, gathered a bunch of the nonprofits together in that neighborhood to say, how do we solve this problem? Now, a couple of people who actually lived in the neighborhood, because often the people who, and I say this as somebody who uh, founded a nonprofit, often the folks who run nonprofits don't live in the neighborhoods where they're serving, right? so a couple of people who lived in the neighborhood found out about this meeting and they came to it and the foundation asked the room, assuming it was all, you know, nonprofit leaders. So what is the problem in this community? And one of the women, um, West African wearing a hijab, uh, stood up and said, so I live here. And there was kind of a collective gasp from the audience how come you're always talking about us, but you're never talking to us? And the foundation was like, oh, we thought we were because we were talking with these nonprofits. And the nonprofits were kind of like, we thought we were representing you, but they hadn't asked anything about what the community wanted. So if the foundation had asked the nonprofits, what does this community need? They would have said affordable low-income housing, which is true. But when they actually started directly engaging the people who lived in the neighborhood, including the faith communities at that point in time were trusted institutions and people from the neighborhood would show up to a meeting at the local Catholic church or the, you know, Iglesia or whatever. Um, That was the gathering spaces when the foundation said, so what is it you need? They were like, you know what? We're, most of us are immigrants and those of us who aren't, they didn't use the term generational wealth, but they're like, we can't, we can't collect money to pass on to our kids. Mm. Affordable housing doesn't actually help with that because it's rental. 
We want an affordable pathway to home ownership. We want support so we can launch our own businesses because we actually have a bunch of skills that nobody in this country cares about, but we can serve ourselves and each other. Yeah. Um, completely different model for yeah. neighborhood renewal than what the nonprofits and the foundation would have come up with if they hadn't actually talked directly to the community. Yeah. Um, that's a very wonky, you can tell I get super excited about policy. No, I get but why. I think it's I relevant totally to our personal lives as well, right? Is we don't always think, I wonder what they would like. We think we're supposed to assume it and we don't always get it right. Well, let's zoom out on it a little bit and, yeah. and talk about, because I mean, even as you tell that story, there's so many interesting parts of that story. Yeah. Perhaps most horribly and notably and interestingly and all that is, you know, people dumping toxic waste in no a neighborhood joke. because you can just do that, right? It's mm -hmm. just, it's a poor neighborhood. You can, and then you can go down the line of the story. What? Let's try and get to the, like, this is a big question, but let's take that instance. How do you think somebody gets to the point where they say, I'm going to dump toxic waste in this community, oh. right? Like what, how as humans did we get to a point? And I know we've been horrible in some ways for a long time, but you've studied this so much. You think about sure. this so much. I'm, I'm kind of a first principles person. If I always think if I'm going to solve the problem, I need to understand that problem at its core level. How do you think about that? Like, why, why do we do that? Why are we doing that as humans? I mean, I think that's a legitimate question. And I do think it's not unrelated to that question of accountability sure. is yeah, yeah. if we're not accountable to anyone else, um, if we're only accountable to our, and it's funny because my uh, partner is, what does he call it? A sustainable hedonist. So I'm going to sound <laughs> very like anti-hedonist when I say this, but if we're only oriented around getting our own needs met, we have a tendency to, without even realizing it, dehumanize those around us. I honestly think the folks who were making those calls didn't really think the people in uh, the Dudley Street neighborhood were valuable human beings. Um, and I know that sounds horrifying. Well, it is horrifying. But on some level, a lot of our policy decisions are made around whose humanity matters more. Um, I'm going to ask you to forgive me for being political. You are welcome to delete this yeah, part if you yeah, want to. Yeah. Um, I find myself thinking any parent I know would say, I would do anything to protect my child. I would, I would kill for my child if need be. I would do, I would break any law to protect my child. I mean, my mother's, my mother's Scottish. And so she's like, if you do something stupid, you're on your own. But most <laughs> parents, you know, would go to any lengths for their children. And the same people who say that are like, how dare immigrants bring their children across the border to escape almost guaranteed death mm -hmm. or forcement, uh, you know, being forced into gangs or being forced into sex work. There's, and what's implicit in that is my kids matter. Mm. How dare you think your kids matter? Because mm. 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 I yeah. absolutely would bring my kid across a border to help them escape terrorism, violence, gang involvement, sex work. Yeah, it's 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 interesting. The phrasing you use there of like I would I would I have a son, so I, it resonates. I hear exactly what you're saying. Yeah. Like I would I would kill to, to protect my yeah. child. I find myself thinking sometimes if although that makes complete sense to me. And as I said, that resonates sure. with me as a parent. That's it's almost instinctual. It's biological. Of course, yeah. If that sentiment isn't near the root of the problem, this idea of I'm willing to do anything to protect mine. And when you do that at scale and when everybody does mm -hmm. that, well, now you have a problem because yep. you know, everybody, and it's almost this idea of like, I, I don't know where the end of the thread gets to, but like, 
what, what you're asking people to do is to, in some ways, what they hear is not care as much about their kids. And it's not that. I know that's no. what you're saying, <laughs> but it's somehow trying to, in some ways it is though. It's like, yeah. in a weird way, the thought should be, you shouldn't care more about your own kid than you should care about somebody else's kid. Yeah. Is that kind of what we're saying with well, it? Well, I think it's don't be angry at someone for caring about their kid as much as you care about yours. Don't be angry at somebody for caring. Okay, so let's assume, let's let's play that out for a second. So let's yeah. say, okay, I'm not going to be angry about that. Mm -hmm. But what if I feel like, I'm not saying it's true, obviously, but what if this person feels like, but my kid is now in danger in some way because of this yeah. situation. So like, okay, I don't want to be angry, but I do need to protect my kid, mm -hmm. right? And, and yeah. there's still a sentiment of my kid is more important. Sure. So I need to do whatever I need. But that's sure that yeah. you just gave, which I totally yeah. get. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that the problem? Is that, I mean, should we not be sure of that? Should what I think is interesting is I think what's missing there, maybe accountability and empathy are interconnected for me. Um, I think we often are forced into these binaries of if I let, if I let other kids across the border, it puts my child at risk. I mean, yeah. Obviously, you and I know the data that actually yeah, yeah. undocumented immigrants cause considerably fewer crimes than U.S. Uh, citizens. Uh, so actually, I am much less at risk from an undocumented person than from pretty much anyone else. But these decisions aren't made out of reason or good data. I understand that having tried for years to convince people that the data was what mattered. Um, and... I think that we often think there's only a one or there's only a binary, right? It's either I let all of those kids in or I protect my kid from those kids. But I think that that's not actually how policy works. It's certainly not how global law works. And so if we pause and think, of course, they are scared for the safety of their children. I wonder why oh, it turns out there are these horrific gangs. There are people who are being conscripted into them at the age of 12. There are people being kidnapped uh, from lower class families and then held for ransom for tens of thousands of dollars that the families don't have. There are really awful conditions. What is it that caused those conditions? What's our role in addressing those? Is there something we can be doing? Um, and, you know, there's lots of different ways of looking at that. I mean, I look at uh, some of our uh, some of our criminal justice policies actually having huge effects abroad. Mm -hmm. um, the most dangerous gang in El Salvador started in Los Angeles in the prisons. Um, so what is it we can do to create more of a sense of safety abroad? Because if you think we're not shaping Central American uh life, then you don't understand how U.S. law works. I think we can back up enough to say, how do we create better conditions so they don't have to, because I don't think they want to leave their homes. They just don't want to live somewhere that's unsafe. What, but, is, what is it we can do about that? But doesn't it ultimately start with caring about, mm -hmm. right? Like, and that gets that back to the point of it. Like, I, I, I'm sure there's plenty of, of humans out there that care, like all else yeah. equal. Yeah, for sure. I wish those yeah. kids didn't have to suffer. I wish Central America was a safer place for them. Those gangs didn't exist. Mm -hmm. But, but like, I'm always going to care about my family more. Sure. So when it comes to decision-making, when it comes to what I'm willing to do, how much effort I'm willing to put forth, how much mind share I'm willing to dedicate to it. And that's why like the cynical side of me says, mm -hmm. there's no hope for humanity. Now I'm not necessarily saying that's true, but there's no hope for humanity because that's what it would take. It would take people yeah. to ultimately back where we were before to say, I care as much about that person that I've never even met before right. as much as I do about my own mother or son or sure. brother or whatever. 
And I don't know if we're capable of that. Like, I think you're right. Yeah. I think the policy things you're saying and, the, and the, the, the more like pragmatic steps we could take, I think there's a lot of logical things we could mm -hmm. do. I wonder if that root point isn't just, it's never going to work at scale though. It's never sustainable because we're just not capable of it. You know, it's interesting because I think, what if, what if people said, it's not possible for us to actually understand numbers beyond a hundred. Mm. Um, we, anything beyond a hundred becomes conceptual. We're not actually mm. understanding them in real terms. Okay. I think the same thing is true with people. And so I've done a lot of, I've done a lot of research into you probably know, because I mean, this kind of points to the same thing. Poor people actually give considerably more money to charity as a percentage of their income mm -hmm. relative to wealthy people. And they're more likely to give that money to charities that directly help people in need. Wealthier folks are more likely to invest in, you know, symphonies and universities, mm -hmm. things I care about, um, but that don't have a direct save this person from dying impact in the the same way. Now, I I have poked around and there has been a fair amount of research done that shows that the problem isn't lack of empathy, it's lack of proximity. So when wealthy people actually engage poor people and hear their stories, their giving trends change. Um, and I think the same is true for almost all of these issues. I, and, you know, I think I've mentioned I'm a, I'm a person of faith and faith communities tend to be a place where you bump, ideally bump into people who are different from you. Mm -hmm. Um, people who have different life experiences, people where you're like, oh, I always assumed everybody with addiction was like this. It turns out, or I thought everybody who was undocumented was like this. It turns out that's not true. And so proximity I have found to make a really big difference when, when we know somebody, they've become human to us. And uh, See, my experience is getting to know folks actually changes things, which is why you might be right about the lack of hope, because the pandemic has caused us to associate even less with people from different socioeconomic backgrounds, cultural backgrounds than before the pandemic. Yeah, and that really limits what we can do in terms of empathy that, and therefore accountability well but i would even say like proximity I, I buy that completely that that's that's a big piece of it but i think accountability should supersede that right like i think if you're not holding yourself accountable then yeah. i you i could make the argument that proximity is the next best thing because then that almost forces accountability yeah. it's in your face it, it's like it's uncle tom's cabin back in the yeah. day right that forced yeah. people to yeah. be like oh my god that's happening right well now we'll do something about it yeah whereas i think accountability in the way you're talking about it is like don't wait to have to see it and smack you in the face don't wait for something to tell you that we can yeah. make this world better and reduce suffering yeah. hold yourself accountable and do it anyway yeah which i think gets back to your value and where you started in some ways yeah. like if we can get more people to practice that maybe then proximity isn't as needed because it's going to be hard to get everybody you know in that way is that kind of how you think of it with accountability? I think so I mean for me it's interesting as I've had this conversation a lot recently um there's a there's a video going around about this guy who uh was a pastor and he died and the first person who spoke at his funeral said you know I had cancer and he made sure that when I couldn't work, my family had enough to eat every week. Uh, you know, this guy said when I was in the ravages of addiction, he showed up for me every day to make sure I didn't take another hit. Um, you know, four or five people are giving testimony to this guy's amazing capacity to show up for people in need. And then this super raggedy kid, well, young adult comes up and says, he was my dad. He never paid any attention mm. to me. And the whole point of that story was, 
hey, pastors, charity starts at home. And one of my friends sent it to me to be like, what do you think about this? And I was like, so here's the interesting thing. I think that is absolutely how human nature, like you said, works. It is not how actually any of our religions work. Mm. Christianity, Hinduism, Judaism, Islam, all say we are morally obligated to care about everybody as if they are our siblings. Um, and while that's going to, I honestly think those, that shows up in all of the major world religions because we're going to prioritize our kids most and they're just trying to counterbalance. Yeah. Um, yeah. They're like, you should care about everyone exactly the same because that might invite us to care a little bit more than we yeah. normally would. Yeah, I found that too. I'm, I, I Before I started doing this podcast, I was not particularly spiritual or religious. Mm -hmm. I still am not practicing mm -hmm. it in any way, shape or form. But the more that I do this, the more that I open my mind, the more that I recognize there's, and, and I'm not an expert on it by any means, there's an aspect of all different religions, exactly as mm -hmm. you're saying, which seems to try to be accounting for human nature, yeah. right? Even if you take Christianity, that's what I'm most familiar with. Yeah. This whole idea of original sin and that whole idea of that, like this kind of guilt and shame, which don't get me wrong, like there's aspects of that which have caused a lot of problems. Oh, and yeah. A lot of horrible things without a doubt. Yeah. But if I try and trace it back to where it first started, maybe I'm being too generous in this, but I think there was an acknowledgement of like, hey, like we're not suited for this like we're going to be yeah. really horrible to each other and we have to acknowledge be accountable up front yeah. and say we are broken in some ways and we, we are trying we to correct for it yes mm -hmm. and we need mm -hmm. to force something and what better thing to force people to accept this than that yeah. there is a higher power and there's yeah. fear of hell if you don't do it and like again <laughs> it doesn't excuse the horrible things that have happened right. but there's a very deep like understanding and logic to it if you can understand where that came from as well as an invent all of them also have an invitation to humility because they start out with you're not perfect. None of us are perfect. And we're going to have to acknowledge that in order to move forward. That's the other part of accountability is there's a humility to say, I don't always get things right. Mm -hmm. um, that I think is, it takes a lot of pressure off. It allows me to show up better. But uh, I'm like, yep, I, I screw up sometimes. How did I screw up this time? Because this gives me an opportunity to get it right the next time. There's a funny thing in that, though, where people can take that to the extreme mm -hmm. to where they lose accountability because, it's, well, yeah. I'm not perfect. I hey, mess I'm... up, right? Like, ah, oh, it happens. That's just me. Like, oh, yes. well, right? You can go that. So yeah, that's, no, that's, totally that's what makes true. this whole thing so hard. Is you're I can't walking remember. Rope constantly. I can't remember which stand up comedian it was, but his entire show was called God's Not Finished With Me Yet. So he's making <laughs> all these jokes that are hella problematic. Um, and every time he makes one that I'm like, oh, that was kind of sexist. He's like, hey, I know I'm not supposed to say that anymore because I'm saved now, but God's not finished with me yet. And I was like, that's that's bad that's theology. The <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah. Well, all right. So so let's look at that. So I'm trying to think how to frame this question or phrase this question. So so there's problems, obviously. Let's let's just take where your world mainly is focused: diversity, equity, inclusion. Yeah let's just call it what it is, right? There's, there's, there's people of color being mistreated for a long time now throughout our history. As you stated before, there's, there's a lot of white people. I know many of them, some of them are my family, some of them are friends, whatever, where, where we were before, there's this instant reaction of like, um, but I'm not a bad person, right? Yeah. Like I, it's not like, I'm not bad. We're not inherently bad. There's nothing to that. How do we, how do we make sense of it? Right? Like, how do we try and understand it? Because I think, I think there's there's a there's there's one belief that some people have that's like it's just the circumstances as they played out. Right. Like we just happen to be put in a position of power that shouldn't make us evil or devilish in any way. And almost as far as to go to say, if things were reversed, 
if people of color, color were in power, they'd probably do the same things that we're doing, right? right. I understand the sensitivity and the provocative nature of right. all this, but we're exploring. Yeah. What do you think about that? Like, let's just yeah. put it all out there. Like, how do you think about why history played out the way it does? How does race play into it? What's what's your take on all of it? Yeah. And, and actually, history is where I love to start. My most recent book was called Rebels, Despots, and yes. Saints, The Ancestors yeah. Who Free Us and the Ancestors We Need to Free. I am very into thinking about history as a way of getting at this. And it's not, you already know this, but it's not just the history that has happened. It's how we've been taught the history that has happened. Mm-hmm. Um I have found not a lot of people know about Bacon's Rebellion, 1676, Mm -hmm. 100 years before uh, the U.S. was uh, officially founded, where white indentured servants and black enslaved people came together to rise up against the people who were mistreating both of them in different ways. Slavery and indenture were different things, Mm -hmm. but uh, but people were like, yeah, we are a lot more alike than we are anything like those dudes. that's around the same time that the quote unquote science of race begins to emerge in the Americas, in the in Europe. And I, I'm going to sound conspiratorial when I'm like, I don't think that's an accident. But the folks who did have all the power realized, oh, if we convince the indentured servants that Black people are the problem and give them just enough of a sense of superiority they're not going to come for us and we can keep stuff the way it is. Mm. And I've found that over the course of all of history, the people in power perpetuating fear uh, is the most effective dividing tactic. And I've seen it play out in global uh, scenarios. I've seen it play out. Gosh, darn. Uh, India continues to live in the, the wake of um, British colonial power which did a great job as they were leaving being like hey you know who the real problem is they did it in Israel Palestine they did it in Rwanda they I mean over and over they've done a very good job of setting fire to stuff on their way out and making it look like they weren't the ones that set the fire brilliant and they financially benefited from that um so I think that um what's really important is to recognize in our history, the places where we have shown up for each other, mm. where there have been cross-cultural resistance movements, where, you know, the Black Panther Party trained Appalachian uh, workers who had moved to Chicago in how to organize for tenants' rights. I mm. think we have these notions that people are pitted against each other when, in fact, you know, they were showing up, they have shown up for each other over and over and over. Uh, So I think that's part of what matters. I think the other thing, though, that is worth naming is I've been in a lot of trainings where people of color have been talking about something going on in a company. And they've said, you know, we have these policies in our hiring practices that limit the number of people of color who are ever going to be a part of this institution and that don't allow for similar uh, promotion. And the people who are the ones who established the company are like, you're saying I'm a bad person. Hmm. And it's fascinating because the people who are naming the problem are naming it as an institutional problem, not as a personal problem, not as an interpersonal problem, not even as a problem that has to do with the individuals at the top. Hmm. They're just saying we should change company policy. But the people who created those policies are like, you're telling me I'm bad. There are ways in which we end up talking across each other because people personalize people with power tend to personalize the institutional um when i just want the policies to get changed 
And that's part of the work I've found is I have found I have the most success when I'm working with organizations about our shared commitments for change, because then it's not the people in power versus the people who aren't in power. It's the people who want to see change. And admittedly, it is against the people who want to keep things the same way. But generally, anyone I'm in a room with identifies as someone who wants to see change, even if it's the CEO, even if it's the, you know, the C-suite, even if it's the board of directors, they all understand themselves to be people who want the world to be better, who want their company to be better, who want their nonprofit to be better. Mm. And that's where I think we often get unstuck from the, you're attacking me so much as a oh, I have a role to play in this getting better. And that's actually empowering and exciting. So if you extrapolate that to society today, mm-hmm. generalizing here, but is 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 that suggest that there's a lot of people that don't want it to get better today? Because like, like, like based on what you're saying here, mm-hmm. it should be that we, we rhetorical collectively, whatever, realize that and say, hey, we want the country to be better. We want life to be better. We want suffering to be reduced. We want poverty to be reduced. We want all these things is the implication that the reason why we can't get to that, like, yeah, we're all shared working towards that is that there are people, a lot of people who don't want it to be better. Is that kind of how we we think of it? You know, I don't know that I see it that way. Um, I saw, I saw a, a friend of mine posted a meme yesterday that said, I love being called woke by people who clearly slept through eighth grade civics class. Um, <laughs> and so I think there is an element of, we don't we don't know what causes the conditions until we're aware of what causes the conditions i and and so it's not necessarily we want things to be this way so much as we don't always have a framework for how they could be different i think Mm. often we're kind of like man this is rough it's a shame there's nothing we can do about it because the messaging we get is this is too big a problem Mm. uh i don't know if you've ever read any of naomi klein's work she taught she's Uh, she does a lot of work around uh, environmental change. And she said, Mm. you know, most of the climate scientists I talk with actually think we still have time to turn this around. And the messaging we're getting is it's too late, which is very disempowering Mm. um, and causes us to be like, well, I guess I can't do anything, which means that Mm. companies can keep making money doing things the way they are because they don't have to change anything. Mm. But her point is, if we become aware that there is time to change things and that there are things we can do, uh, we will we will do them. It's that we're constantly being barraged with a message of this is just the way it is. Mm. There's plenty of things in this world I just took for granted until someone's like, you know, it hasn't always been that way. You know, it doesn't have to be that way. Mm. I needed someone to tell me. Mm. Mm. Is that true though of power dynamics? Because because a lot of what we're talking about in this mm-hmm. conversation, I think, comes back. I think you would agree, it comes back to power dynamics, right? You said yeah. it before. It's the people in power that you know dictate things. And I'm no expert on history by any means, but as far as I can tell, those power dynamics have been at play and caused a lot of the pain and suffering throughout history. So when you think of it, I guess I'm going back to that cynical view again. Like, what what gives you hope? What gives you optimism when it yeah. seems like we can look throughout history and see the same problems? In yeah. different cultures, in different countries, in different places, different time periods at all times. Where does the hope come from for you? Yeah. So for me, it's I I really didn't love this expression during Occupy, the whole thing about the 99%. Mm-hmm. But the more I've sat with it, the more I've been like, but it's true. Mm-hmm. So 
one of the union organizing, and I know some people are like, oh, unions, but one of the most interesting union organizing campaigns I've seen uh, is some of my colleagues who have reached out to tech workers. These are folks making a couple hundred thousand dollars a year, which for many of us feels like a lot of money and saying to them, you keep identifying with the CEO of hmm. Apple, of Google, of whatever, you know you have more in common with the people who are cleaning up after you, right? Mm -hmm. Like the custodial staff, the cooking mm -hmm. staff, the, um, and also you, let's be honest, they're being exploited. They're getting paid, you know, minimum wage uh, when this company's making billions, but you're also being exploited because you're working 60 to 80 hours a week. You're getting paid a lot of money. Mm -hmm. But, you know, my, my boo worked at Apple and his boss had three heart attacks by the time he was 60. Um, and so to organize a workers campaign that says, hey, tech workers making a couple hundred thousand, you should be in solidarity with the low wage workers because you're also being, ex all of you are being exploited um, and all of you deserve better because this company can afford more than that. Mm. And they're trying to tell you you're very different so that you don't join forces. To me, that was a really beautiful campaign because I saw a lot of uh, a lot of people from my own South Asian community get involved in it uh, and find a certain amount of pride in realizing, oh, I have, you know, part of what I left behind was family who had to do low wage work. These are actually my people. They may speak Spanish instead of Urdu, but these are my people. Um, and to build cross-cultural solidarity, most people wouldn't think that a person making 40000 a year and a person making 200000 a year are on the same side, mm -hmm. but they absolutely can be. And mm -hmm. I've seen it happen. I've seen it happen. Uh, showing up for racial justice does amazing anti-racism work. And they've been going into Appalachia and saying to poor white folks, hey, a lot of the reasons you're struggling are the same reasons Black people are struggling. When we say Black Lives Matter, it's not that your life doesn't. It's that we're trying to pass laws that make their life better that will also make your life better because mm -hmm. mm -hmm. you're dealing with a lot of the same things they are. I've been mm -hmm. really inspired by those kinds of campaigns. They take some work because they are going against the dominant culture because the folks who own the media and the folks who yeah. own the companies yeah. are the same people at this point. Yeah. Uh, and, that, yeah. and so we have to dig around to find those different ways of looking at the world that can give us a sense of our own power and connection. Yeah, I'm going to say something. I, 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 what I, what, the point I want to make here is, again, the, the nuance and the complexity of this, yeah. of what makes all this so challenging. But inevitably, I, I recognize there's going to be sensitive parts of this. So I'll say that up front. But to that point, it's like, it's the challenge of this, right? Because Black Lives Matter is a great example. The, the, let's, let's focus on the phrase of it, the concept of it. Um, I personally believe it, it's completely reasonable and rational to to state that and make that a thing that's in people's faces because to me, there's a lot of evidence throughout, at least just even looking in this country, in the US, throughout the history, that there's a lot of evidence that black lives did not matter nearly as much. I mean, you can go, you talked about a, a town in, in in Boston, you know, right. Dudley, you can go countless towns across America where people sure. have been mistreated. Now, Haven in New York. even yeah. in New York, right? You can go throughout the list. Now, it's not just black people, but Certainly yeah. the, the history of slavery and the civil rights movement and Jim Crow and all that stuff, it's caused that. So it's completely reasonable to say Black Lives Matter because it's justified. It's reasonable. Mm -hmm. Once you say that, though, inherent in that is you create a bit of a divide, which is exactly what we're talking about right now, which is that actually we're much more similar. 
right? Mm-hmm. It's 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 1% of the population that arguably is the problem. 99% are together. I'm not by any means saying people that say Black Lives Matter are causing the problem. What I'm stating is that that's the complexity of this. They're saying something that's completely reasonable and fair, but in some ways works against what you were just saying to try and make us all feel united. Mm -hmm. What the hell do we do about that? (laughs) How do we cross that bridge? How do we figure that out? Yeah, no, I think that's fair. And I mean, for me, the reason Black Lives Matter is actually a helpful statement is going back to that notion of accountability. Mm. Um, If I I have a reaction to that, I get a chance to pause and be like, so what part of that don't I think is true? What is it that they're actually trying to say? Nobody's saying Asian lives don't matter. Uh, no one's no one's saying that when they say Black Lives Matter. So what is it that's going on? Now, I happen to live in the town that Alicia Garza was working in when she came up with the phrase. So I know the history of the phrase was actually after Trayvon Martin was murdered, she wrote a love letter to her community, right? Which was basically saying, I wish you knew, Black people, I wish you knew how beloved you are. Because mm. this world keeps trying to tell you, you don't deserve life, far less love. But your life does matter. Um, and that origin story is so profound to me um, that I always try to share it uh, when I get the chance. So I think it works when we are thinking in terms of accountability. It doesn't when we are we have a sense that we are under attack as well, right? Um, I did this workshop. It was really beautiful. There was, so I'm from the border of Bangladesh. My father's from India uh, and we're from West Bengal, right on the border of Bangladesh. During the pandemic after George Floyd's murder, the Bangladeshi Women's Empowerment Network, uh, which is mostly older first generation immigrants said, we want to understand this whole, you know, black solidarity thing so they invited a bunch of gen z folks to say here's the stuff you can do here's how to buy black products here's how to you know pay attention to anti-blackness in the workplace uh here's some strategy you know Mm -hmm. they did all of the practical stuff and then they had me come in to do a history of black and asian solidarity in the u.s because many of us who are first generation immigrants don't know the history and we definitely don't know the history of solidarity any more than black and white folks know about cross-racial solidarity. So what I was struck by is they were willing to have the conversation. They were aware that a lot of us who are Asian have been trained into distrusting Black people and Black people similarly distrust us. Um, But the thing that they wanted to make sure those of us who were younger and who hadn't lived through, you know, the Bangladesh independence movement or Indian independence or any of that, the question they asked is, do the presenters understand what we've been through? Mm. And I think that's a really important part of what you're talking about is they were really able to show up for how do we support our black brothers and sisters, our black siblings, once they felt like the people who were asking that of them understood what they faced as well. Mm. Mm. And I think that that might be kind of, the secret if you're trying to move others i think that's the secret ingredient if you're trying to do shifting within yourself i think it's my pain also matters Mm. and it can give me insight into why somebody else is fighting for their rights and Mm. that helps me show up well for them i've been really moved by how many of my black colleagues and indigenous colleagues in the past few years 
have asked how they can show up well for the Asian and Pacific Islander community um, in the midst of all the hate crimes we've been facing. Mm. Um, but that's because we've been in relationship and we know that the other people care about us mm. and what we're going through. Mm. I think mm. that's where the hope is. Yeah. Well, I know we're coming towards the end, so I'll, I'll say this, Chanda, and I'll give you give you last word. Um, I think accountability back to that value yeah. to me, it's it, the, the thread, the theme that keeps running through this is the importance of it is because this is hard, it's complicated, and at least my opinion of it, we are not well suited to handle hard and complicated. Mm -hmm. And if we have any hope on any side, right, exactly to your point, it's it's no matter where you sit on this, there has to be accountability. There has to be this understanding that whatever feels justified, whatever feels right, it may be, but it may not be. There may be mm -hmm. something that's clouding your view of it. There may be a deeper way to think about it. There may be a more empathetic way to think about mm -hmm. it. And constantly pushing ourselves like we were before with religion of what that's intended yeah. to do in some ways when it's at its best. Yeah, That's why this is so important because we have any hope of figuring this out we need to do it because it's a super hard thing to do. Yeah. That's why I think it's cool. These conversations, the work you're doing, and I, I appreciate it a ton. So let me, I totally agree with you. And the thing that I realize is always implicit in everything I do is the payoff is community. Hmm. I mean, when we do the work of accountability, well, when we do the work of uh, listening to each other, well, and learning about each other's struggles, we end up having a family we didn't realize we were going to get. We end up having love and support and encouragement, and we grow much more deeply. There is a payoff to it. Uh, we don't just do it because it's the right thing, although we mm. should. Mm. I think part of the reason the world religions all point to it is because it's how you get to live in a much better world for you as well as for everyone else. Mm. I think there's a definite payoff to it. That's a good. I'm glad you said that. I'm glad you said that. Well, Sandra, I hope you have an awesome rest of your day. And again, I thank Harry, you I'm for being so on. I'm so glad I got doing. to be with you. I'm glad Thanks you did too. Lot. I'm glad. This is great. Thank you. Hey, thanks a ton for listening to the episode. Um, I really do appreciate everybody that listens. And I think it's super cool that people want to hear conversations like this. They want to hear us talk about values and different perspectives and really just philosophical thinking. Um, I'm kind of on this mission or journey to bring philosophy back to the forefront, maybe even make philosophy cool again, because I just think there's so much value in thinking about our thinking, questioning and challenging ourselves more, pondering these big picture questions about life. Um, so in that spirit, I'm trying to expand that mission a little bit, and I created a Patreon account um, that would be awesome if you check out. I'll put the link in the show notes. Uh, it's pretty simple, though. It's patreon.com slash what's the value. And the idea is for people that maybe want to learn more about philosophy, dip their toe in it a little bit, or maybe you already love it and just want to get more of it, um, check it out because there's kind of a tier for everybody, whether you just want to get like a quick philosophical video or a thought of the day. Um, maybe you want to email or text me some questions and get some thoughtful philosophical responses. Or if you want to have a live one-on-one -on -one chat over Zoom, um, we're even doing group discussions where we kind of do group philosophical debates and discussions and ponder some of those big questions. So check it out, see if it's something you might be interested in. Uh, as I said, I just love to bring more philosophy into our lives. And I thought this might be a cool way to do it. Um, whether that's your thing or not, and you're into Patreon or not, I really do appreciate a ton that you listen and check out these episodes. So I appreciate it greatly. And I hope you have an awesome day.